0: welcome to Everybody Hates Me Let's talk about stigma a podcast hosted by Dr Carmen Logie She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show.
1: Today, I am so thrilled and excited to have our very esteemed guest, Dr. Jillian Einstein, who leads the Einstein Lab, focusing on cognitive neuroscience, gender, and health. She is a faculty member in the Department of Psychology at the University of Toronto, an adjunct scientist at Women's College Research Institute, and a member of the Institute for Life Case Course and Aging and the Center for Sexual Diversity Studies at University of Toronto. She's also the founder of the Collaborative Specialization in Women's Health at U of T, University of Toronto, and she's the Wilfred and Joyce Poslund's Chair of Women's Brain Health and Aging, and a guest professor of Neuroscience and Gender Medicine at Linköping University in Sweden. You have so many titles, Dr. Einstein. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me, um, Carmen. Uh, the stigma is such an important topic and it, it really infiltrates everything that I do, but I don't often think about it directly. So I'm really grateful to you for bringing this up and making me think about it.
1: I'm really honored you agreed and I know you've been on many panels. I want you, before we get into some, some stigma questions, I want to know, and I know you know how to do this, being a very famous academic. If I was in an elevator with you, and we we're going up a couple of floors, and I said, so, Dr. Jillian Einstein, how do you describe the research that you do? What is your elevator pitch?
0: Um, I'm interested in how the social and the biological come together to make more women have Alzheimer's disease than men.
1: Wow. And I think that's, I've learned so much about that from you. And I still feel like I have so much more to learn. I want to know if I'm going to show up to your beautiful place, which I would love to show up to your beautiful place right now and go for a walk with you. Maybe that might happen with some two meter distancing. Um, If I want to show up to your place and say, Take me back. I'm going to show up to your place, the time machine and say, let's get in this time machine. Take me back to when you started wondering about these uh, sex and gender differences and and, and maybe even Alzheimer's and the differences between women and men.
0: Where would we go? Where would you take me? I would take you back to my being, uh, I think I was 11 years old and I went to a movie on Saturday morning uh, for kids on great, you know, famous people who'd accomplished a lot. And the movie was about Mary Curie, the woman who discovered radium. Wow. And I still remember this image of Mary Curie in a long black dress. She was from the 19th century, stirring the pots of radium at night <laughs> with the glow of the radioactivity activity, <laughs> suffusing her face. And I thought, I want to do work that I'm that passionate about.
1: Wow. So where was this movie theater?
0: Uh, it was, a, you know, it was one of these things that parents got together in small Texas town. I, I lived in a small Texas town because my dad was in the Air Force. And parents got together and they thought we're going to show our kids movies every Saturday that will inspire them.
1: Oh, that's awesome. So it was in yeah. someone's
0: house? You said it was in the theater? I'm trying to remember. Even <laughs> Just, Maybe some auditorium. <laughs> some amazing. High, junior high auditorium or elementary school auditorium. I I really can't remember. So you I were
1: inspired you know. by this woman scientist when you were 11. Now oh. you are this total inspiring woman scientist, probably <laughs> inspiring other girls and women to and, and other people of all genders to but to do science. That's so cool.
0: Yeah, I hope so. Um, and I think I was inspired by the fact that she was a woman and that I could identify with her. I always was interested in women in science, but it really wasn't until I was already an assistant professor that I thought I want to do something that isn't just about the story of women in science, but that teaches substantial science about women. <laughs> and that's when I found out there really is almost nothing known And most of it's in the field of what's called hormones and behavior. And most of it is focused around hormones and how hormones affect sexual behavior, actually. So even though I said I'm, you know, I'm very interested in, you know, my my goal is to understand why more women than men have Alzheimer's. It's also the case that I study other genders as well in order to try to understand this question. So it's led me quite, it's made me go quite far afield, but... But I'm still very focused on the, the same question of substantive knowledge about women's bodies, really.
1: And I, I there's two things that came to mind. One of them is I've been trying to think of how I met you. I think I met you talking in your class, which is a women, your women in health collaboration class. I can't remember. I don't know if you remember. And then we became friends and we've had some lovely meetings and hangouts and then you started which the second thing I wanted the listeners to know you started COGS. Yeah. Uh she's a Canadian organization. I should know because I'm a member of COGS. Canadian Organization for Gender and Sex Science. Is that right?
0: Sex Research.
1: Sex Research. Ah, I'm, I'm such a bad member.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so I know you came to talk to my class at the Dalana School of Public Health, Gender and Health. And I know that I invited you because I thought you were so inspirational. Oh, you're so And so that sweet. these students who were trying to understand gender and health would learn so much from you and your work. But I can't remember how we just met. You know, it might've, it might've been a long time ago when Women's College Research Institute was the Center for Research in Women's Health. Because I'm
1: also an adjunct scientist there, too. I did my postdoc there, so it could have been there. It could have been there. And, you know, we had a research day there. And it yes, could, it yes. Could have been there. Totally. I think that was it. I feel like we've been in the same orbit for a long time, and now I finally get to see you more, well, other than COVID.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I started the, the Canadian Organization for Gender and Sex Research, which was only about a year and a half ago, you know, I thought, who needs to be on this executive committee? Corbin Logan needs to be on this executive committee.
1: <laughs> I love how diverse our group is. It's the most, all different disciplines, all different perspectives. And we get into really exciting conversations and debates. And it's, it's really awesome. So everybody, I'm going to have a link to Dr. Jillian Einstein's work and the lab. So listeners, if you're interested, come check us out. So I want to ask you, why does stigma, discrimination, and how it impacts people, why does it matter? Or why is it important to look at in your field?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, there's the big application of that question to society. Mm-hmm. But if I just take the application first to the brain and neuroscience, it's extremely important in terms of brain health. Because stigma and adversities, microaggressions, daily microaggressions and that sort of thing, they raise stress levels and stress gets expressed in the body through increased cortisol levels, increased release of other kinds of hormones, and they have a direct effect on neurons. And they have a direct effect on cells in the brain that actually play a role in memory as well as in emotions, and there's very good evidence that stress, the stress response, can actually exacerbate some of the pathological effects that can lead to Alzheimer's disease and other dementias.
1: That is so fascinating. I, I never, before meeting you and learning about your work, I had never put the two together, but it makes so much
0: sense. Yeah, it's stigma is a real strong way where the social can become biological. It can influence lots of other body systems as well, of course, and can lead to other kinds of diseases besides neurodegenerative diseases. For example, long-term stress, and let's say you're in a stigmatized population like LGBTQ, you have long-term experience of microaggressions day after day after day, after a while, your stress response is no longer very flexible. Your, your stress is high. You're releasing a lot of cortisol. It stays high. And the next stressful thing, nothing happens. It stays that way. And when it gets that way, people start to develop metabolic disorders. They start to develop diabetes, heart condition, obesity. It has very serious health repercussions and is, in fact, a, you know, as I would view it, a public health problem.
1: I think it's so fascinating because what you're you're doing is you're, you're helping the listeners and, I mean, the world, really, with your research, see that stigma matters, and it matters for society by creating these public health problems, but it matters for individuals because it becomes part of their, their body in a constant stressful experience of life. And I think looking around right now and at the world, and we're talking a lot more about all different kinds of stress, about the stress of racism, and about the uh, stress you know, of LGBTQ stigma and how those often intersect. So just think that it really matters for people's lives and their memories. I think I never really, before meeting you, had thought about how stress can affect memories. This is related to my next question I wanted to ask you about, which is, I think you've kind of started to answer it, which is how does stigma work? And so you've kind of started taking us there. You're saying that it produces stress and that that this stress might be constantly high and that it has a whole bunch of different uh, physiological effects is there more you maybe want to share about in your vast range of, of research, what that has looked like, maybe for you know, different populations or different contexts?
0: Well, I, I think of, uh, I mean, I'm going to sidestep the question a little bit, kind of just to talk a bit about... Great.
1: Take take us on a journey anywhere you want.
0: (laughs) We'll go anywhere. (laughs) Another aspect of stress that I've been thinking a lot about right now during COVID-19, which is the stigma of of aging. So all of a sudden, the aging population, anybody over the age of 70, and maybe it's even 65 now, you know, is expected to stay home, get deliveries of groceries, all this stuff. That in itself is very stressful. But all of a sudden, the aging population is looked at as a group that is vulnerable and can't do anything in the world. Mm. And I'm very concerned that that not be the case once COVID nineteen. Well, once we have a vaccine and and everybody's getting the vaccination, because people who are older have the long view of life. They have a lot of experience, and you know, I count myself in there, and I'm. I found that during the crises that we've been facing around racism, systemic racism, I've been able to say to my students, well, you know, I've been around a long time. I saw the Watts riots. I saw the Vietnam riots. I've seen others. Something that I think is hopeful right now is that in those days, the riots quieted down and everybody said, okay. Mm -hmm. And now everybody's saying it's not okay. Yeah, we're going to keep what, going
1: because we really want you to not forget about making the changes, right? Right.
0: And I think that long view that I could say, you know, I was around back then and I can see society's better now. We're not there yet, but we're better. But there are other important things, I think, that older people can contribute to society and also just have extremely good lives. So I, I just, I don't want the purported vulnerability of the aging populations during COVID-19 to sink in and set up a sort of stigmatized view of, th- of people.
1: I totally agree with you. I think that what we've been seeing is exacerbated stigma and discrimination towards certain groups because of COVID-19. It first started in Canada targeting uh, Chinese Canadians and expanded to other Asian Canadians. Now we're seeing other populations being impacted. Exactly what you said, people who are older are being impacted. And I think two things. One of them is what you said is, is are we going to be further socially isolating people or further imagining their vulnerabilities rather than the wisdom and the strength and the long view? That's a huge issue. Is it gonna make our stigma that society already has towards older people worse? because we're seeing them as risky or vulnerable or just sort of not as a part of the solution, but as part of the problem. And the second thing I think when it comes to aging and stigma that I'm sure you've been thinking about a lot too, is it's showing how terribly we treat people in long-term care facilities, how terribly people have been treated and without a spotlight, on that, that I think, you know, there was a a report that came out about the living conditions and the ways that people have been abandoned in long-term care facilities. And so for me, it's really highlighting uh, this catastrophe of how society is treating people who are older and how there could be these long-term impacts of COVID on our perspectives and how we, we appreciate and value people who are older.
0: Yeah and I think that stigma actually is then then applied to the people who take care of them mm-hmm. because what covid-19 has really shown is this very nasty underbelly of not providing working wages and full-time positions with benefits to the people who take care of the elderly mm-hmm. who are in the most vulnerable positions and I think to some extent it's because Of the stigma associated with aging, and then the work itself becomes stigmatized. So I'm hoping that our becoming aware of this now will lead us to destigmatize these professions and really treat the people who take care of the vulnerable, shall we say, in respectful ways.
1: Yeah, I've been also thinking a lot about conversations I've had with colleagues who are indigenous for this book that I'm writing. And one of the, the chapters is on cultural humility and it each chapter is a different research project. And one and I'm reflecting on lessons I've learned and and how I've changed and how I've grown and how those lessons might be helpful for other researchers working with people who are often labeled difficult or hard to reach or (laughs) marginalized or vulnerable. And one of my reflections to my colleague who is um, Métis was, yeah, something I've learned from working with you is how wonderful it is to involve elders in all of our research with youth. And she turned to me and said, this is how it should always be. We have (laughs) so much to learn from elders. Why wouldn't we include them in every single thing we do? We also can learn from babies. We, we need to think of everybody is having wisdom, but elders in particular. And then I started reading a lot about what elders offer from a specifically uh, teaching of, of cultural traditions and knowledge, how elders often adapt their stories for people of different ages. And, and I think that this is probably cross-cultural is elders have a lot from observing and then they know how to translate that information into what's happening today, like what you just said with your students and saying, oh, I've seen all these things happen in the past. And and it's it's given me a perspective that can enrich how we're understanding and how we move forward. So I, I think it's there's so much going on with how people um, are treating people who are older, and, and it is worrisome to think that, COVID-19 could be increasing social isolation and marginalization rather than learning from past pandemics even and past difficult experiences.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really important point, which is that the Western tradition has a lot to learn from other traditions, um, especially the indigenous. And, you know, it isn't that other cultures don't have stigmatized groups. It's just that maybe they're different ones. And so we need, to, <laughs> we need to learn how to take well, how to build a culture that doesn't have stigma, period. Right. From from the lessons of all these other groups.
1: That's actually my final stigma question specifically for you. What are some solutions that you are thinking about in all of your immense program of research? How do we intervene or interrupt or transform, even from your research or just from your observations in the universe. What what are you thinking? We can do about about all of this. I mean, either from about the stress that that stigma causes, that produces these health problems, or you know, just or just your thoughts on on some solutions. Well, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a big question. <laughs> big question.
0: Uh, I think it's really important to build a society in in which everyone is respected and in which everyone feels safe. You know, there's nothing wrong with a little healthy competition. There's nothing wrong with a little healthy stress. It gets us going. But to have conditions in which people are under these kinds of uh, influences day after day after day after day is really unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And I think in all the work that I do... I try to shift perspective. I guess I think if you can shift the perspective on something, whether it's the right perspective or not, it gets people to see things differently. It kind of moves their neurons around a little bit. So I like to think like, I like to get people to stop thinking about reproductive health and start thinking about the effects of the ovaries on the brain, Mm -hmm. for example, which then just shifts your gaze Mm -hmm. a little bit differently. And I feel that way about a lot of the projects that I do, that the whole idea is to startle people. Mm. And, and go, Holy smokes. I never thought of it that way before.
1: Cause we think about our body parts. Just what you said, like shifting our perspective and startling is, is really cool because that's a sign that we're being disrupted from what we normally think about. So you might think ovaries are over here and your brain is over here. And you think about them as, as, being disconnected rather than as part of the same body (laughs) in the interconnected system.
0: Right, right. So I guess, you know, I mean, I think that might be a way to, one one small way to approach and eradicate stigma would be to shift the perspective on groups or to shift our perspective from groups to individuals. Mm Mm-hmm. Because stigma is really something that is a—it's it, more about a group than an individual. And then you think you know the individual based on the group. Now, you're the sociologist, so I should be very embarrassed about making any kind of statement. No, but what
1: you're saying is it's stereotyping and, and it's a lack of seeing the complexity within people and how, I mean, there's I'm sure you've seen the TED Talk, uh, The Danger of a Single Story. And yeah. so it's this beautiful TED Talk and she has this line in it. That she said, the problem with stereotypes is not that they're never true, but they're they're not the full story. It's it's one strand out of thousands of strands, and yeah. people pick out one strand and they don't select. As uh, Adiche is the the woman who, who did the TED talk, but that that there's this whole ball of complex complexity of people's lives and experiences and values and beliefs and. And when we we just see the ball without moving in closer and saying, oh, look, there's all these different strands, all these different stories, all these different experiences, we miss that complexity. And that complexity is, I think, what will help us see people as different than whatever the stereotypes or the cultural values or norms have have led us to believe that all people are like this. Or So I, I do think it is seeing, once you start to say, oh, this is, oh, this individual is like, oh, this indi- Oh, well, this stereotype is really incomplete. You know, yeah. it's really shallow or it's not the real deal.
0: Actually, you know, just as this is totally off the cuff, uh, as you said that, I started thinking, you know, one of the real harms of stigma is not seeing people as individuals. I mean, everybody wants to be known. And when you feel you're in a situation where you're being judged as part of a group, and not yourself, it's very frustrating, mm-hmm. and very upsetting. So I think this, this issue of focusing on individuals and complexity uh, is a really, really important way, movement away from stigma.
1: And it can be that st- when we do feel startled and we're surprised, That is a signal to us about maybe what biases we have or what expectations we have that we don't even know are formed by us accepting stereotypes about people. So when we're like, oh, oh, that's why are we surprised that this person is doing this thing? Oh, that's a bias I had. Oh, interesting. You know, so. I think there's, you know, there's one whole realm of stigma reductions, not like we need to go there, but just is around the social contact uh, theory, which is about if somebody meets somebody from a stigmatized group, then they all of a sudden see the humanity in this group that they hadn't seen before. So people oh, I'd never met a gay person before. I never met a person living with HIV before. That is, in and of itself, is a way to do that startling. And it needs to be scaffolded by anti-discrimination laws and, you know, systemic change. But on an individual or interpersonal level, the social contact approach helps, I think, do what you suggested, that startling that, oh, oh my gosh, this person is... (laughs) watches the same TV show as me or you know then yeah. this is a real person rather than an idea of that person. So yeah. it's one it's one component of how we reduce stigma, you know, alongside our, our reflection of our own values and systemic structural anti-discrimination support. So I like that your idea of startling. I'm gonna <laughs> be like startling like is a good word. thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing. And I like your word startling. And of course, you know, just to take it back to the nervous system. That's what the nervous system likes. It likes mm. to be surprised. That's what we notice. In the visual system, if you keep looking at the same thing for a long time, all of a sudden you don't see anything. You need change in order to, reco- in order to perceive. So the, the visual system likes startle. And the, I, I think the whole nervous system likes startle. It's what kind of knocks it back into place, you know, and makes you, know, makes you alert and aware
1: Amazing. Before I go into the wild card questions where the listeners can learn about the real you, is there anything else you, you already shared a ton of wisdom. So there's, you don't need to say anything, but is there any last thoughts you want to research or work thoughts before we go into the wild card section?
0: Oh boy. No, (laughs) I don't think so. Okay. All
1: right. So wild card question number one, are you, watching anything exciting on Netflix right now?
0: <laughs> I was watching The West Wing. I haven't seen that before. I've heard of it. That's, it's, it's a wonderful. political show? Yeah. It's an old series that went for at least seven years. It got lots and lots of awards. It had great acting. And it's great for somebody like me who wishes, the, who wishes for better government. Mm. because it shows a president who's really struggling and the West Wing is the area of the White House where the president's, um, the people that he brings in or that she brings in to, uh, you know, do the day-to-day stuff and help set policy, that's where they work. Mm. And, and so it's really nice to watch because it's, it's kind of optimistic. People make right. mistakes and then they learn from their mistakes.
1: I love anything hopeful. Hopeful yeah, is good. Exactly. <laughs>
0: I also, I have to say, I really love the show Shtisel, And I tell everybody this. You have not heard of that. Did I tell you that? No. It's Stichel, Um It's just, a, it's, a, it's an Israeli television show. Just two years they had it. And you'd think it would be the most unwatchable show on television about an Orthodox Jewish family. And yet, because they don't drive cars, they don't wear flashy clothes. They don't there's nothing extraneous. It's just emotions. It's oh. just dealing with their own feelings, the feelings of the people with them. And it's so moving and beautiful, I have to say. I wow. recommend it to everybody. Yeah, it's really good. Okay. It's really good television.
1: Amazing. We've been watching the great Canadian baking show. <laughs> <laughs> and I were like, oh, it does not make me inspired to learn to bake. At all, it makes me like oh, this is really hard. <laughs> I'm very impressed by everyone's talent, and also the gender diversity on the show is awesome. Uh, uh, but I was like, oh, I like watching people do all the baking, <laughs> and, and you know, the, they're like have these time constraints, and it's it's just like a fun thing to well, watch. There must be know.
0: a lot of emotion in it. Then I mean, oh, if you're so not interested emotion. that much in baking. Then it must be like the <gasps> interactions and the people. And oh,
1: the- it, I like it because they give them like you have two hours to make. And then they give them a recipe that's incomplete and then they're all like trying to freaking out and they're burning things and there's a lot of emotion. So you're right. I like the emotional thing. All right. I have a second question for the wild cards. If you could go anywhere in the world with anybody you want at any time in history for dinner, who would you take and where would you go?
0: Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, what a great question. I'd like to go back to above the Arctic Circle Mm. in Norway. And I'm sure it wouldn't be an awesome dinner, but there's some pretty good restaurants there. Because I love the light at this time of year. Mm. It's just amazingly clear. And obviously, it's almost all night now. Who would I go with?
1: Is there a town up in the north of Norway? I've never been to Norway. i always wanted to go I was in yeah. Finland
0: I'd like to well there's some islands there called Lafoten Islands I follow them
1: on Instagram oh, I follow them and they keep they keep saying like if you like us and tag somebody will you could win a free vacation oh, I have got- liked I have liked all their posts I'm like okay if you're listening I just Lafoten I am giving you a shout out and I would love a free vacation there post COVID
0: <laughs> yeah I think right now maybe Angela Merkel, but you said oh. any time. I just think she's so impressive. Uh-huh. yeah. In her politics, in the way she's managed things, but you know, there. You said any any time in history.
1: It's it's a little bit of a broad question.
0: It is. It's a big question, and you know, there's so many times when I think, oh, I'd really like to have known that person, like. Too many people. There are too many people. I would have liked to have known. Let's <laughs>
1: well, we'll stick with the Lofoten Islands, which is which is a bucket list. So maybe in the future, you and I could go there. Let's go there. We yeah. did uh, linked me up with the wonderful people in Sweden. That was fantastic.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: Yeah, I love the north, the Northern Lights, or the twenty-four-hour daylight. It's it's amazing. The final question: oh. Is there any? meaningful or special advice that you've ever received or that you've learned over time that you'd like to share with the listeners? Any life advice?
0: Well, the advice I give my students and most younger people with whom I interact, and and anybody who asks actually, is follow your heart. Mm. I really believe it seems so old-fashioned and corny, but I really believe that if you do what you think is the right thing to do, and you follow your pleasures, life turns out great. You mm-hmm. know? Every day is a pleasure. And I think it makes a really honest life, which in the end, I think is, is what you want to be able to look back on and, and live with. I
1: love that it's something that might change over time, you know, that it gives you a lot of freedom to, to check in on your path and be like, oh, what does my heart want right now, you know, or what? I love that because it lets you still grow with, with a self-awareness.
0: Yeah, totally. And also if you follow your heart, then when you look at all these different things that you do and you're trying to put them together, they're not individual different things. They're all you. Mm -hmm. Then you think, well, it's like, it's like what we were saying before, the kind of amazing complexity, of people that our expressions in what we do in life are all about us if we're true to ourselves and then they can be explained in a sense if you need to explain them like in an elevator like you started off <laughs> and they can be um, by the larger principles that you're guided by so i really do believe we need to follow our hearts and yeah i think that's it i was going to tell you a funny story about it. i actually had a very bad elevator experience with somebody I admired so much I was just desperate to impress her (laughs) and I was I there I was I was on the elevator with her and I started telling her what I did and it went on too long and her floor came up and she just walked right off
1: You know, I think there's something about distilling what you do in an essence, in, in a sentence that, you know, is actually really hard to do. It's, it's, it's a lot of thinking and practice And those, you know, I'm sorry that, that you never heard all of your ideas.
0: It taught me you know, a great lesson. And also, it, it's taught my students a good lesson because one of my assignments in class now is an elevator speech. Oh, and everybody has to distill what they wrote about in their paper to sixty seconds.
1: You know, grand challenges. I had this. It's really funny. I think it's still somewhere online. The first, I have a grand challenge now, but the first one I had was back in 2011, and I think it was a 60-second video, or maybe it was two minutes. It was something really short, and you had to describe your entire project. I can talk really, really fast, so yeah. I just practiced to get as much in as possible. Yeah. And then I had people come up to me, and they were saying, great idea, but you talk too fast. <laughs> and I was <laughs> So like, okay, I guess the lesson is um just fit less in that space, <laughs> you know, instead of being like super fast speaking, just try to like distill it down a little bit more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the the key to it is not talking fast, but actually condensing.
1: Right. <laughs> Thank you so much. I am so grateful. Dr. Jillian Einstein, listeners, I will put links up to her labs, her work, and you can learn more about the fantastic and truly life-changing research that that you're doing. Thank you so much for coming on and taking the time today.
0: Well, thank you very much Carmen. So such an important topic and I really appreciate being involved in it thank you for listening to everybody hates me let's talk about stigma a podcast hosted by Dr Carmen Logie join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world Mm-hmm.